When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast show number 66. Read the, the, like the physical newspaper, just making sure you know what's going on around the world, exactly how I saw what happened in Italy with the breathalyzer machine, what happened in Thailand and in other parts of Asia with the sanitizing tunnel. That was one of the integral parts of being able to pivot. Welcome to a real-world MBA from the School of Hard Knocks, where entrepreneurs reveal what it really takes to make it. Whether you're already in business or you're on your way there, this show is for you. This is Bigger Pockets Business. How's it going, everybody? I am Jay Scott. I'm your co-host for the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. And once again, I'm here with my lovely co-host, Mrs. Carol Scott. How's it going today, Carol? Doing really well, but I think that we as parents and business owners are joining a lot of people around the country right now in this whole crazy dilemma of what do we do with our kids to make sure they continue learning, right? All the back to school choices are coming up and we know what we're doing, but we are definitely empathizing with all of you who are in a similar situation, just trying to do what's right for your family, what's right for the kids and just make the best of the situation that we're in. So hang in there, everyone will somehow get through it all. Yes, absolutely. This whole COVID situation has changed life for pretty much all of us which is a good lead-in for our guest today. He certainly changed his life around based on COVID. Uh, his name is John Berlingeri, and he is a serial entrepreneur who spent much of his youth and, and post-college uh, work experience in the manufacturing world. His grandfather owned an aeronautical manufacturing company, and he's done manufacturing his whole life. He's had several businesses focused on manufacturing. And when COVID came along, he saw an amazing opportunity to capitalize uh, from a business standpoint and also help people with this whole COVID crisis. So back in the beginning of April, he came up with this idea for creating a sanitizing station, basically a walk-in station where you can go in and it would do a whole bunch of stuff to ensure that you are safe from COVID and those around you are safe from you if you have COVID. And over the next couple months, March, April, he basically went from concept to manufacturing this $20,000 product. And on our show today, he's going to talk all about how he came up with the idea for the sanitizing station and how in just two months, he went from just pure idea to building this thing, dealing with disrupted supply chains, getting stuff from uh, China, 
I mean, it's just a great story. And it's a great example of how in this difficult COVID time, we as entrepreneurs really need to be pivoting and changing our business to do whatever it takes to continue to make money and to continue uh, to be successful. Make sure you listen all the way through because John has some amazing tips for investors. And one of the best tips that I've heard in a really long time about what we as entrepreneurs, investors, business owners should be reading. What should we be reading today to really keep on top of what's going on in the world and be able to compete with the best of them as successful entrepreneurs? If you want to learn anything more about John, about his company, about his product, check out our show notes at biggerpockets.com slash bizshow66. Again, that's biggerpockets.com slash bizshow66. Now, without any further ado, let's bring John Berlingeri onto the show. John, it is so great to have you here today. Welcome to our show. We are so looking forward to hearing all about the National Safety, Health, and Compliance Commission in your amazing product, the Sanitizing Station. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jane, Carol. I really appreciate it. I've been listening to you guys since day one, and I'm happy to be on the podcast. Awesome. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I'm glad we have you here because one of the things that I've noticed over the last few months is that there have been kind of two types of entrepreneurs, those that are kind of trying to figure out how to be successful and keep their business moving forward, status quo, and those that are kind of taking the the tact got to pivot, got to do something different, got to gotta stand out and really kind of leverage, to use an overused term, the new normal. Um, and I love the fact that you've kind of dove into doing this whole pivot and taking advantage of, of the changes that have gone on. And so I just have a whole lot of questions. I know Carol does as well, not just about your business, but about like all the decisions that went into this huge leap off a cliff to do a, a big project that's COVID related. So yes. said, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background, uh, what kind of got you into business and entrepreneurship, kind of where it all started. Sure. So I come from, I, I want to say, a long line of entrepreneurs. Um, so my grandfather, who I'm actually named after, so he's from Italy. After World War II, he was a farm boy in Italy, and it was devastated, you know, war-torn Italy in the 1940s and 50s. He moved to Argentina, and he became a machinist. And he was working at multiple factories and in other industrial plants. So we were in Argentina. My dad was born there, as were his siblings. And then in the mid-70s, they came to New York. And my grandfather was working as a machinist during the Vietnam War, creating uh, airplane parts for the military, for Grumman, for Boeing. And then he brought my family over, well, my dad and and his siblings. And they started their own company. It was a, a machine shop, defense contractor. And they just progressively built the business. They started with one machine uh, in a basement, actually, and kept building a second machine, a third machine, getting more contracts, being a subcontractor for other big contractors, and just progressively kept building the business. And in the mid to late 90s, I started working there after school. I was nine years old, 10 years old, sweeping the floors, cleaning the toilets, uh, washing the windows, and then progressively started helping assembling parts, part marking. And and as I grew up into a teenager, I started going onto the machines, uh, the CNC 
large computer controlled machines that mill because there's a milling and turning. We actually mill cut the uh, the steel, the titanium, the aluminum and custom make uh, aircraft parts and also parts for satellites for NASA, all different big contractors like Harris, like I said, Boeing, Grumman directly for the military, uh, the Navy, the Coast Guard. And that's how I got my taste of aeronautical engineering. And the the precision that goes into making aircraft parts is mind-blowing. I mean, they call it the tolerances, or if you took a human hair and split it seven times, if the part was in or out of those dimensions by 0.001 of an inch, it was scrap. With all the documentation behind that, the precision of uh, manufacturing and and then controlling those parts, right? These parts are going on on fighter jets. So the amount of paperwork and traceability that's behind that gave me a really good insight into manufacturing at a high level. So I was able to parlay that knowledge onto other projects that I was involved with going past that initial learning curve. So did you go to school for engineering? I mean, it sounds like you were doing manufacturing and engineering, aeronautical engineering type work early on. Was this before college, after college, during college? What did you study in college? It was before college. So from a young teenager or like a boy, almost, you know, nine, 10 years old to my late teens, early 20s. I learned hands-on. I sat in on meetings. I, I was That's how I had all my whole business experience. Anytime an accountant, an attorney, an inspector from the government or another outside inspector, because we had the uh, IS, the ISO 9001 and also the AS 9100 certification specifically for the aircraft manufacturing. I would sit on, on all those meetings and all the audits and learn through that experience. So that was like one of my my uh, requests to my dad and to my uncles and aunts. They say, hey, can I sit on and literally every meeting you guys have from 17, 18, 19? And I would just be quiet and just sit there and try to absorb all the information and just learn. So after after working for your grandfather's business and, and getting experience and getting an education, did you go into entrepreneurship, business ownership yourself right after that? Or did you get a job outside of college with somebody else? What was the progression from here you are, uh, you see the entrepreneurship with with your family, you have engineering background now. What are the next steps that lead you to kind of say, okay, I'm ready to be a business owner myself? So actually, in the early 2000s, I was into eBay and going to auctions. So actually, the storage unit auctions before the storage wars and and all the TV shows, there was literally like five or 10 of us going around to all the storage unit auctions. So that's besides the factory that I would work during the day, I would either on the weekends go to these auctions and try to resell the items on eBay. And I went to college. I had almost a, a third of a scholarship, almost a half of a scholarship, and I was there for about one semester and I dropped out because I just wanted to get into the business world and pull the trigger and get involved while everyone's coming in drunk and high, you know, in their pajamas. I just wanted to get right into it. So I just started uh, doing the auctions a lot. And and then I got a little warehouse with a partner and we were selling the products on eBay. And that's how I started my entrepreneurial journey, reselling online. Okay. And so that was... 15, 20 years ago, you're buying and selling, you're doing transactional. Where did you go from there? So then I was doing the eBay, so say for about a year or so, I went back to my dad's shop and when I took a, a greater role in in managing and the operations and, and the shipping receiving of 
of his factory. And I traveled to Italy during that time and to visit a friend who was studying overseas. And I saw a breathalyzer vending machine in Italy. And I said, hmm, that seems like a really cool idea. I was 21 at the time, you know, juniors in college or my, my, my buddies were. And I bought one of those machines and I showed it to my dad, a couple of the other engineers. And I said, hey, look at this machine. It's going really well in Europe. Let's bring it to the U.S. So we reverse engineered it, made our own. And, you know, we make airplane parts. So to make a vending machine is is easy work, <laughs> more or less for us. And and then I started a breathalyzer vending machine company. From actually seeing it in Italy, I said, hey, let's do it. And we started manufacturing a couple samples. I marketed them. And within like three weeks, I sold like $50,000 worth of breathalyzer machines. And what? I, like, oh, I might be on to something. This is your early 20s. Your early first 20s. like real... Uh, kind of solid product manufacturing situation on your own after your yes. eBay thing. You saw this product in Italy, said, I want to bring that to the U.S. There's not competition yet. You go back to your shop where you're manufacturing precise parts for airlines. So this for airplanes. So the concept of this breathalyzer machine, you're like, oh, heck, I can do this in my sleep. This is nothing compared to what we're used to doing. And you sold right. that much right out of the gates. That's phenomenal. Right out of the gate. Phenomenal. Yeah. That is the coolest thing. So you, I think you mentioned that your dad was working with you maybe at the time. Did you have other business partners doing this or was it the, solely the two of you? What was the arrangement there? He's solely the two. My dad was just helping in an advisory role. So it was, I was 100% owner in that. And then we just kept progressing along with the first prototypes. We got the orders. We first, you know, we were fulfilling the orders one of my main ideas with the breathalyzer is you're reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, having residual income. So I was like, oh, if I can have a few, uh, may I have a route of, say, 50 or 100 vending machines, then, you know, these can be mini rental houses. I can net, say, 50 or 100 or 200 bucks a month off of each vending machine. So if you do the math, if I have 50 and make 100 a month, I was like, oh, I can, you know, make five grand a month uh, residual income. And, you know, help people with drinking and driving. They can check themselves with the breathalyzer. So, you know, trying to do some good for the community, but while also making money. So I listed them for sale. And like I said, they, they sold like $50,000 worth within three weeks. So I kind of shifted from the route perspective of placing machines. And I ended up placing a bunch of machines also, but I actually took them off the wall so I could fulfill the order. So <laughs> the ones I already had placed, I had to kind of backtrack and, uh, and I sold and filled the orders. And then we just, I got another office space, a warehouse, and we just went into production and, you know, making a few hundred and a few thousand. And I was uh, selling distributorships throughout the U.S. So we had like 50 in Vegas, 50 in Miami, 50 in L.A., like pretty much every big city we had a distributor. In, and we ended up selling like three or 4,000 machines uh, in total. Then a lot of competition from China came in, Korea, like just other manufacturers came in and kind of just killed the market and lowered the price significantly till there was little to no margin. Well, I'll tell you, we could have an entire show just on that business and that product. Yeah. And it's funny, I didn't know about that. If I would have known that, I probably would have said, hey, let's do that that one first. Um, <laughs> yeah. So maybe we'll come back and have you back just to talk about that business because it sounds like there are a lot of great lessons learned there. But I want to get kind of up to today. So where did you go from that business and how did that kind of lead you to, we get into this COVID crisis and you're like, okay, now I'm going to do a product that is specifically geared 
towards what's going on in the world today? Sure. So, I mean, I, I went kind of fast with the breathalyzer company, but within that was over a span of like two or three years. I was able to sell it. I should have, looking back in retrospect, I should have sold it at its peak. And that was my first company that did over a million dollars in revenue. I should have sold it, you know, when we were doing 1.1, 1.2. I probably could have got like seven, 800,000 for it. And I ended up, you know, just kind of riding the wave thinking I was going to come out with another product that I ended up selling it for a fraction of that, selling the route and the, the components and everything. Um, so after that, I kind of went right into Amazon. So back to the transactional, eBay kind of ran its course more or less. And I got into Amazon and Amazon FBA and selling products on that. And then the whole Corona COVID thing happened, right? So I was essentially out of business with my Amazon FBA. I was selling non-essential products, so I couldn't send any more products in. I was just selling through my inventory. And I have a partner. I'm sure you guys know of the Entrepreneurs Organization, EO. Um, So I'm a member of EO. I was actually an accelerator, which... So to be a member of EO, you have to do over a million in revenue. Right. So they have an awesome program. So for accelerators, if you can do, if you do a minimum of 250,000 in revenue, you can become an accelerator with the hopes of getting you above that million mark within three years. So I was in uh, entrepreneur organization accelerator program and I had this really awesome coach who's my mentor. His name's AJ Caro, who's actually my partner now. And he's very successful. He has a a large uh, security company with like over 1,500 guards and also a home healthcare company that has uh, home healthcare aides with also about 1,500 employees. So he started from nothing, you know, built it up. So he has like over three, you know, close to 3,000 employees, really smart guy, organized, systems driven. So I learned a lot from him. And he told me that he had a case of COVID in his finance department. And he called a decontamination company to clean the office. And it was like a dollar or something a square foot. He's like, I just spent like four or $5,000 on decontamination. I'm sure it's going to happen again somewhere here or at another office, one of our friends' office. Let's start a decontamination company. So I said, all right, you know, let's do some research on the foggers, the machines and everything. And we started off in that that realm of decontamination cleaning. And there are so many companies, SurfPro, um, just every janitorial company or every carpet cleaning guy became a decontamination company with like little to no certifications in general, besides like Surf Pro and people that are versed in that area. So we said, are we going to be, you know, one of a hundred different guys decontaminating? You know, we're too business savvy. You know, I have my manufacturing background. He's very systems driven. Let's see if we can come up with some type of like sanitizing booth or sanitizing station. So we, we were researching online and we saw, in Asia, you know, because Asia already was, say, three, four, five months ahead of us. What are they doing? They're very smart. They're ingenious. How, what are they doing to tackle this problem? In Thailand, there was college students that set up a carport and they had UV lights and it's some type of misting system in there. I mean, it looked kind of cheesy. It was like a big tent carport, but the idea was there. The concept was there. I said, hmm, you know, let's see if we can, you know, come up with a prototype. Was this March or April or May? What give, give us kind of nail down the time frame that you actually started on this? We're talking March, mid mid March. AJ and I had this conversation actually on an on an EO call. We started a weekly call, and that's when he brought up that he had COVID in his um, his finance department. And then we transitioned into the the station or booth in like early to mid April. 
So that's so you how wasted we, no time. You wasted no, no time. time. And I think it's also, listeners, I think it's also really important that you know John's geographic location. John, tell everyone where you're located and where you're working out of, because I think that helps set the stage of why uh, maybe one of the many reasons you were so ingrained in this right off the bat and saw the urgency. You're right. So we're based in New York, specifically on Long Island, which is, you know, about an an hour east of Manhattan. A lot of people commute in and out of the city. So we're very connected to Manhattan and New York City, which was hit and it was devastating here. It was unbelievable. I had neighbors that passed, frontline workers that passed. It just horrible. Like it hit us like a ton of bricks out of nowhere. And so we we were exposed to it first. And then, you know, as an entrepreneur and just my personality, I wanted to help and try to fix the situation. I can't just sit on the sidelines and just let this happen um, while everyone shut down. So that that's how we just pivoted right away and saw what the the Asian community was was doing in, in Asia and just try to to start making prototypes and copy what they were doing and put our spin on it. That's really cool. And I I find it also uh, definitely noteworthy that, you know, it's almost come full circle where you're talking about 20-ish years ago, you were overseas and you saw the breathalyzer machine. And you had mentioned earlier, a big draw of that product is that you were helping people, right? You saw an opportunity for a business, but also one that was going to save lives. And I think it's fascinating that here we are 20 years later, you're in the epicenter of this crisis. Um, I'm so sorry to hear that you had neighbors who passed and so on. And you, you, you were just like, we're not, we're not just going to sit by and let this happen. We have the, the power, the knowledge, the expertise to do something about this. So you decided to tackle it head on. I think that's very, you know, just very smart in so many, in so many ways. So, so first I'm, I'm just so curious, you know, this is, this is a big undertaking, right? We're talking about, you saw this, this carport type of thing with the plastic on the sides and it sprayed, you know, the, the disinfectant and and whatever. So first, can you tell us what your take on the sanitizing station is and how you first started the product development and how it evolved? So it's it's interesting that you bring it up. There's a, a lot of similarities in my friend. My actually, my mom brought it up a couple of times. How it is similar to the breathalyzer machine, like like you just stated. So my partner and I started making prototypes. So he's actually very handy, also and mechanical. And we were up late at night, about like ten thirty, and I'm in his office, and we're like I said, we found we found that that product in Thailand. Then a couple of days later, he at a PVC piping, he built a a station or at least the framing of it. So we thought we were going to build it out of PVC and then we can wrap it with some type of a boat wrap, like, you know, like the boat shrink wrap that you winterize the boats with. I said, hey, let's try that. But then it was a little too flimsy. Then we progressed onto vinyl fence. Hey, let's get some vinyl fencing. Let's get like the eight foot sections and we'll put them together and we'll make like a, a rectangular box out of that. We can hook up some sprayers, maybe some UV lights to it. So that was the second prototype. Uh, so you went from the PVC piping to the PVC fence. And then I went back to the to the sheet metal shop that built the the vending machine case for the breathalyzer. So I, I hit them up. I said, oh, wow, I haven't seen you in you know, 10, 15 years you know, in, in, a, in a while. And I said, hey, I have a new idea. Let's build this. And so I was with them and for a couple of weeks and we ended up building the frame or you know, the actual uh, outside casing of the sanitizing station. So that's how 
we progressed along from PVC to sheet metal because the PVC was a little too flimsy, but we got the concept, you know, we got the sizing, we got the, uh, the whole schematics of it down. And then we went to, like I said, to the sheet metal shop, and then we just kept fine tuning it, you know, adding features here, adding features there, ordering samples from China, like, like tablets and the pumps and all the electronics, the breakers, and, you know, all the internal guts for the machine. I've got to know, John, I'm so curious. Well, first of all, this is so fascinating, all of these different parts and all of these different components that have to work together to construct it. Just from a logistics perspective, I've got to know, how were you able to get these components from China? I mean, I know in my industry and real estate and staging and even on Amazon right now, you order anything and stuff is backordered, you know, stuff that used to take two and three and four days maybe is now weeks and weeks and weeks. What were you able to do to get all your stuff so quickly and efficiently so that you could work through these prototypes? Calling on connections in the industry from electrical suppliers. We have, you know, family friends in the electrical supply business. So AJ and I would just do it like a shotgun blast. If we needed UVC lights, we would place orders in four different areas on AliExpress, Alibaba, Amazon, and then say a local supplier. And whoever came in first, you know, we would just, you know, use that knowing that, like you mentioned, that Amazon from one day prime turned into two week prime uh, out of nowhere. So we would just blast everyone for like go after like four or five suppliers for each component. And then, you know, we'd be calling and texting each other like, oh, hey, I got this in. Oh, I got this part in. Where's the other parts? Check the tracking. And everything was delayed and and backed up. But if you try four or five different avenues, generally one will come through. That is such a great tip in and of itself, right? So often we hear or we think about as small business owners, we hit a roadblock and I can't get this done because, but you and your partner were having nothing to do with that. We're like, we're just going to keep hitting up person after person, after supplier, after supplier, whatever we have to do until somebody can come through and give us the materials we need. So I just think that's a really great takeaway and a really great reminder that often things are a lot more within our power if you have the right approach. Absolutely. Here's the thing that 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 really strikes me that stands out here is that maybe you have a different attitude, but from an outside perspective, this seems like a huge risk. So we have COVID going on. It's mid March. There's a lot of disagreement about whether this is going to be a two month lockdown and then everything gets back to normal. There's talk of by the time the summer comes, the virus is going to be gone and and we're not going to have this concern anymore. Other people saying, yeah, it could be six months or 12 months. But even at the at the 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 worst case scenario, most people back in March were saying, yeah, in a year we're going to have a vaccine. Um, So you're sitting here spending an inordinate amount of time and energy and presumably money to build this this mm-hmm. product that by the time you have something that's ready to go to market, for all you know, the market's not going to exist anymore. So if we got here to, to June or, or May, whenever you had your first uh, product ready to sell, um, the virus could have petered out. You didn't know that. So what was kind of the calculus going on in your head to decide whether this was actually worth it to put in all this time, energy, and money, knowing that the market might not exist by the time you're done? That is a very good question. (sighs) I mean, that was one of our main concerns. Hey, is this going to be a three-month ordeal, six-month? And nowadays, you know, we're talking, we're not even talking months anymore. Is this going to be a year, two-year, three-year ordeal or the next 10 years? Just like after 9-11, right? You know, I was a a teenager when 9-11 happened and all the security changed at 
at the airports. And now, you know, we're just used to everything being post 9-11. We just saw how devastating it was in Asia. I mean, in China, you know, how many tens of thousands of deaths happened. And, and then in New York, I mean, when it really hit New York and my friends, you know, other entrepreneurs, restaurateurs, uh, other factory owners, you know, just shutting their business down left and right. Like we've never dealt with any of the thing like this before. So we could just see the writing on the walls indicating that this may be a long ordeal. You know, we're not getting back to normal. And also the stock market just, you know, crashing horribly and just, you know, day after day, holy crap, another thousand, two thousand points. Oil, remember oil was like negative, like 30 something dollars. They were paying people to take oil. You know, so if kind of combining all of those factors, the the businesses shutting down, stock market crashing, and and everything else going on, you know, to recover from this wasn't going to be a one month thing. So we we were taking the risk, hey, maybe six months. And now that everyone's hypersensitive with the social distancing, the mask wearing, this is just going to become the new normal. And and we just decided to take the plunge and and run run into the fire. Yeah, it, it was a big bet because now that I think about it. You didn't just have the risk of the virus going away. You also had the risk of what if the virus stays really, really bad and we stay in lockdown? If we're in lockdown, well, nobody's going to use your product. If the virus goes away, nobody's going to use your product. Your product is valuable in the situation that we ended up in, which is we're opening up, but we're trying to be hyper vigilant and safe and hygienic. And this is kind of like a best case scenario for your product. Had it gone either other extreme, virus goes away or the virus gets so bad that that we're back in lockdown, your product isn't useful. But you you kind of came out of this in an absolute best case scenario, it sounds like. Yes. Yeah, pretty much. I, I mean, it seems to be that way right now. Uh, a lot of my my friends and you know, associates and, and even the, our factory, because we're an aircraft manufacturer and work for the government, we were essential. So I had that in mind. At least the essential workers were working, which is still a decent amount of the population, the food processing facilities, the factories, you know, everyone that the toilet paper, remember when toilet paper was such a hot commodity, it didn't exist anymore. Uh, those, those areas were, were still working. And at least we would know that we would be able to supply those offices, those critical offices and factories with the machine because there's, you know, a way to take temperatures and also disinfect people as, as they go through the machine. But, uh, just rewinding a little bit in regards to other entrepreneurs and how the example I gave when, when I was looking for components at this critical time, we placed orders with four or five suppliers. Same thing happened when we were building the website and the brochures and everything. I uh, like to leverage virtual assistants online. So on Upwork, on Fiverr, I would hire, and, I, and I've been using them for about 10 years. And it's the VAs, any entrepreneur get a VA, all your web developers and all your marketing people, they use the VAs and just send you a bill for five times the price. So learn how to use Fiverr and, and Upwork. Uh, so I, with in regards to the web developer, I hired like two or three web developers at one time, like one expensive, one medium priced, and then like one, like maybe a little bit lower priced, and then like see what they would come up with. 
And then I would mix and match, you know, from one one virtual assistant from another. And then we, we'd make like a, a really good website. And then same thing with the brochure. I would just send it out to say three different people and see what they can come up with in case someone, say one of those virtual assistants got COVID or the internet shut down. You know, you, you have to have multiple backups and especially with something this critical and on such a t- short timeline, we had to get it done as fast as possible. Yeah, that's a, a great point. And that was actually uh, the next question I was going to ask you was about like the timeline because you had to get things out. If, you, if this took six months or 12 months or 24 months, you potentially most likely miss your opportunity. And so it sounds like redundant and having multiple vendors and multiple suppliers and multiple uh, writers and multiple virtual assistants was kind of the key to getting everything out quickly. So just for, for our listeners and for, for my knowledge, can you walk us through exactly what the design of the machine does? How does the machine work? I mean, uh, we'll, we'll have a link to the, the website in our show notes so anybody can go and take a look and get more detail. But just for those listening right now, uh, explain to us exactly what the technology is, what what happens when I see this machine and I walk into it. Sure, of course. So now in, in regards to the machine, we saw that right out of the gate that there were nurses, EMTs taking temperatures outside of buildings, right? So we said, okay, that's a critical component. We need to take people's temperatures. There's hand sanitizers that are are popping up everywhere. So, I mean, they've been around, but now they're everywhere. So temperature taking and hand sanitizer, that seems to be one of the most critical components. So in the sanitizing station, the first two steps is having a tablet on the wall that takes people's temperatures. And also we incorporated into the tablet facial recognition so we can connect that to an access control system into a building and it can... Uh, take photographs of anyone that went through the machine. So it can timestamp you like, you know, the time, date, and also your temperature. So we can record that showing that, okay, look, everyone that went through the building had a normal temperature. Or for example, maybe someone had an abnormal temperature. At least we have a record of that. So getting back to the question, as you walk into the machine, put your face up to the tablet, you get it's all contactless, you know, no touching at all. You get your temperature read and it'll tell you if you have a a normal temperature or an above normal temperature. And on top of the machine, we have a a green and red light. So in case we have five of these machines lined up at a stadium and a security guard's monitoring them, they would easily be able to see if someone had an abnormal temperature and can pull them off the line. So that's why we added the light at the top of the um, of the unit. Then after you get your temperature taken and say everything's good, you get the green light, it tells you, great, you have a, a, a normal temperature. You put your hand down and also contactless hand sanitizer. You get a portion of hand sanitizer. And then you walk through the, the plastic partitions and there's an all-natural FDA-approved disinfectant that sanitizes your whole body. And you can it's not a skinny irritant or eye irritant. You can breathe it. You know what? This is the how everyone will know what what uh, solution we're using. When you go into the the grocery store and you see the produce getting misted, I always thought they were getting watered, right? It's not. It's this this specific solution that we're using, so it's safe. You know, we drink it, we've huh. eaten it before, and that's the the same product that we're using, and it's called H O C L. That's like the the technical uh, name of it. It's essentially electrolyzed water. It's like a, a saline solution. And they use it in contact, uh, eye contact solution cleaner. 
so cool. This is so fascinating. I'm absolutely loving hearing all the steps. And of course, I was looking at your website earlier and some news articles you've had and so on. And just everything about the machine, it just seems so brilliantly designed. So curious who you worked with to figure out the different components that were necessary. Like, for example, I didn't even realize until you mentioned it just now that there's the red and green light on top of the machine. So it's easy to identify somebody who has a high temperature, for example. So who were the types of people that you collaborated with to say, hey, we're thinking about doing this type of machine. What are the things that would make it a successful product? So seeing what the market was doing right now, what everyone's response was. So like my partner, AJ, he has the um, the home health care agency. So they were being asked to take temperatures outside of office buildings. So we knew that was a critical component. We had to take temperatures. Then doing research online and found out that in Asia that they and Europe, because Europe you know got hit before us, they had uh, tablets like Android tablets that would take your temperature. So they have like a thermal imaging scanner above the tablet. And so we just we bought that and and integrated it into the machine. So we just had to do all, you know, all the wiring, the back end electrical on that. Uh, the hand sanitizer was was pretty simple. It's just a wool mounted hand sanitizer. So we just mounted that to the side of the machine also. And then the, the disinfecting spray um, you know, everyone's concerned. What are they spraying on us? Right. You know, that's a huge concern. So doing extensive research, you know, what is on the EPA list on the EPA end list? What is CDC approved? What's FDA approved? And there's a bunch of things that, that kill the, or inactivate the virus on, on hard surfaces, but what's safe on humans? So I'm thinking, you know, what do they use to sterilize water? Right. And this is this product they use to sterilize water. What do they use to clean food like at, at a chicken processing plant? This is what they spray on the chicken. This is what they spray on the food prep areas. And through a lot of research, that was probably one of the most difficult parts is, is finding the, the proper sanitizing solution that's safe. And I sprayed it on myself. I had dozens of people go through it. I, I've gargled with it. I sprayed it in my face and it, that I wanted to test that I was my own guinea pig as were other members of the team. So that, that's how we went through the whole process of seeing what components are critical um, and how can we integrate them all into one station. I love this. So, so cool. And again, I'd like to point out, it sounds very much like a lot of your experiences have come full circle because you talked about earlier, back when you were even a teenager sitting in with your grand, with your grandfather, with your aunts and uncles working at the, the manufacturing company, you were sitting in with government agencies. You were, con- you were sitting in on these high level meetings with these stakeholders in a lot of different industries at very high levels at a very young age. So I think it's really cool and noteworthy that that has served you so well on this product. I think it's really neat. So talk, talk to us about the marketing in the sales process of this product. Sure. So we were trying to see who would be in need of the product right away. So right, schools got shut down. So we were we were thinking about you know schools definitely needed uh, any essential workers. So the back to the factories, back to those office buildings that are are critical that no one really thinks about. But like say like some back end office work that does taxes, right? Those are still critical. We have to get our taxes done that, that do payroll that do IT work. So that's who we were marketing to initially, and that's is is who our clients ha- have been so far: uh, critical offices um, or essential uh, essential workers that work in offices, 
And also the schools, specifically in New York, they have to submit their plans for reopening by July 31st. And some school districts, we are incorporated in that reopening plan so far. Um, actually, we, we just had a meeting this uh, yesterday morning uh, for a charter school, and they were uh, interested in getting 10 of them. And they're adding us to their reopening plan that needs to be approved by the state. I love this. I love this whole story. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. So let's, I, I want to go back and revisit the timeline. So you started on beginning of April to develop a product. You went through prototypes and what, I mean, I, I don't know if you know the exact day, but like about when was the first product ready to be manufactured and shipped? Hmm. I'd probably say end of May. Okay. So less than two months from like, we have this idea to, we have a product that, that we're ready to actually manufacture and sell. You're right. Yes. I mean, I was working literally like 18 hours, like 100 hours a week, 18 hour days, just nonstop. Like my wife thought I was going to have a heart attack because I was not not sleeping, just just working like crazy, just like and then also being in contact with China, you you know, they're 12 hours ahead of of East Coast. So, you know, we just start talking at like 11 p.m. and then we go to like 3 a.m. and then I'm up again at like seven or eight in the morning doing it all over again. So, so basically what you're saying is hard work is a component of success. That, Integral. That, 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 that's interesting. I, I don't know if I've ever heard that before. <laughs> no, yeah. I, I love it because it, it's not just hard work, but it's, it's smart work and it's willing to take a risk and it's willing to do all these things that we, we think about with an entrepreneur, uh, a successful entrepreneur, but a lot of times it's not all at the same time. You have to take a risk at the beginning and then you have to put in some hard work and then you have to make contacts. You had to do all of this kind of simultaneously because, again, your market window is potentially very small. Mm-hmm. So two-month period where you had to make the decision to take this risk, you had to make the investment, you had to build the contacts, the relationships, you had to do the prototyping, you had to start doing the marketing, start doing the sales, all in this short period of time. Can you give us an idea of, so who was your first, do you remember who your first customer was? Yes, actually it was um, an office building. So they they had essential workers. Um, actually, it was a, another home healthcare agency, and they had the, also visiting nurses. And they were so they, their staff was nonstop; they never shut down. Um, so they have staff coming in and out of the building constantly, and they were the first uh, company to to implement the machine. So, so when we have a machine like this, is a large machine. You actually walk into it. So, I, I'm just I'm curious, like, what was the process? You get this order. Do, do you have a bunch of machines sitting around waiting to be shipped or is it you get an order and you then you go and you start manufacturing it how do you transport it how do you install it what's just the whole process because a lot of times we talk about products that are like just handheld things like widgets a lot of our our entrepreneurs and nothing wrong with that that's great but the whole manufacturing and shipping and fulfillment and setup is you don't have to think about those things for something like this you have to think about those things so what's that process look like so to fulfill that first order, it was our, our first five that we built. It was one of the first five. So we wanted to make sure that we were selling it locally so we can test it and get all the bugs out. So that was 
definitely a big part of it. We gave them a slight discount knowing that that we were going to be close and we were going to be uh, kind of using them as a guinea pig. And, you know, they were they were cool with it and they were excited to be the first company on uh, in New York or anyone to actually have the machine. So we had a, a close partnership and relationship with them and we designed the machine so it can be foldable, meaning that the walls can collapse in on each other. So in shipping, because say when it's up and, and uh, assembled, it, it's like seven feet tall. So that's kind of tall. So we made the walls collapsible so we can make it like three and a half feet tall so it can ship easily. So, we, you know, we had all that in mind. We wanted to make sure all the components were plug and play. Let's say the pump burnt out or something happened. You know, we could easily ship them another pump. They can uh, unbolt it with like four bolts plug it in and it's and it's back up and working. So that was the way that we were testing it in front of the the first company and you know we were there a couple times a week just adjusting things, programming the tablet for the temperature, getting that those readings correct and it was just a a, a good relationship. So if anyone is is thinking about having a product something larger like this or even a smaller product working with a, a local company that would implement the product and maybe giving them a little discount and just working out all the kinks, you know, over those couple weeks or couple months uh, until it's perfected. And that's why, like, for example, we added the light. Uh, we added to the top of the machine. That wasn't in, in our first prototype. Uh, we added a couple more mister heads. Initially, we only had two. Now we added four. Uh, adjusted the wheels. The wheels were locking and, and, and scraping. So we changed the wheels out. You know, just, just a couple different things that we just kept tweaking along the way until we have the what we think is the perfected model right now, but you know, as as an engineer, uh, I'm always trying to improve it, staying up at night, see how we can make it better, but uh, little by little. So cool. I'm just sitting here so fascinated by, like you mentioned earlier, Jay, the fact that you saw this need, you just went like guns blazing, figuring out how to produce this thing. You're now part of a school re a school systems reopening plan, and I'm just thinking through. The product itself, and, I, and, and just seeing pictures of it, for example, Jay, remember a million years ago, it feels like when we used to take the boys to Legoland, for example, and you already go through the security thing, right? The white piece of plastic thing to, before you actually have the person search you. And I'm thinking this just seems like such an obvious answer for for so many venues right for all the theme parks for someday when sports become a thing again right i mean i just it's i think the amount of foresight that went into this product in the way you subsequently developed it and like you said used the local companies so that you could be part of the ongoing tweaking and development is just so brilliant all the way around. So I just, I absolutely love everything about it. It's very cool. Thank you. Can you give us an idea of uh, what your cost is to produce one of these? I mean, I know it's probably going to change over time as you get more scale and 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 get better at manufacturing. But right now, just uh, just to get an idea of, of your margins, how much does it cost to produce one of these things? And, and what's your typical uh, retail sales price? So now the the price of of metal and and the components and also like the sanitizing situation, just like the PPE, everyone's you know it's been hard to get masks. Uh, so the price has fluctuated. So right now we're around like the ten thousand, eleven thousand mark of our production costs. You know, obviously with volume, we'd like to get it down, you know, to eight, seven thousand, and our retail price is uh, eighteen thousand. So I mean, there's a decent margin in there. You know, if we were making it for eighteen, uh, for ten, eleven thousand, uh, we're selling it for eighteen. And okay, so, so about forty percent margins there. 
Yeah, 40%. And then we have financing. So we worked with a couple. We have actually have two financing companies that we're working with that are our equipment leasing companies. And they can, for a 36-month lease, they can get it down to about like $700 a month for the payments. Got it. How long does it take to, to build one of these machines? Let's say somebody put in an order today for 100 of them. What does is, what is your lead time look like? What's the process look like? We're talking about 30 to 45 days right now. So pretty quick. Like, like a normal lead time, it would say like 30 to 60 days, but we're trying to get it, you know, 30 to 45 days right now. Got it. Um, I have one other question I'm so curious about. So the name of your company, right? It's the sanitizing station. Did I say that properly? Is that the the accurate name of the product? Yes. The, the product name sanitizing station. And I filed the trademark for it right in the beginning. Right off the bat. Awesome. And then your company itself is called the National Safety Health and Compliance Commission, which I would love to hear more about how the name of the company came about. Sure. So keeping in mind like that we spoke about earlier that we didn't know how long or nobody knows how long this whole crisis is going to last. So we said, let's let's start off with the uh, the safety and health part of it with the sanitizing station and also the decontamination when we first started. And then let's say this kind of slows down over the next six to 12 months, we would like to get into a compliance part, say OSHA compliance or that ISO compliance for the factory. So we were going to start a division um, of compliance and and go that route. So, I mean, we still have that on the back burner just in case, you know, a couple of years uh, down the road, this slows down, we will shift gears into maybe another safety compliance uh, combination service, something like that. I love the fact that the name sounds very formal. Um, I know a lot yes, of us. That. <laughs> a lot of us. We we develop companies and products, and we want cute names or easy to remember names. But I guess there's value here in sounding formal and sounding like a company that I. If I hear the name of this company, I'm like, I trust them because it it's not it's not like some. It doesn't sound like uh, Bob Smith. I sanitizer dot right. com. Right. Quite cool right. thing. Right. Bob Smith sanitizing right. station. Right. Uh, so yeah, it's 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 I. There's a we don't think a lot about or well, I don't think enough. I think about names a lot, and but it's it's all part of your branding strategy. It's all part of building trust with your with your clients. It's all part of conveying your your brand. You're right, and that. You, we want to position yourself in the market to be as big as possible, right? So having a proper website, having an authoritative name, well, especially in our industry, you know, if you get a call from the National Safety, Health and Compliance Commission, you're like, hmm, who's this calling me? You're going to take it a little more serious, having an 800 number set up, you know, getting all these things set up right away um, so you can appear larger than you are and have more authority and people will will take you more seriously, and that's I see uh, some entrepreneurs not taking those steps. You know, they're not taking it seriously in the marketplace where it's where it's very competitive. So, John, the other thing that I think is just so beautifully done about the name of your company, um, like you mentioned earlier, it enables you to pivot is necessary. And it right. sounds like that's a key theme throughout your entrepreneurial journey is just this whole concept of pivoting when the time is right. So can you talk a little bit more about just just to all the entrepreneurs out there in general, how you've been able to stay on top to position your companies in such a way that you are able to pivot strategically, to pivot quickly, to make the decisions that are most relevant for what's necessary, depending on whatever's happening in the market and the importance of other people to do that as well? 
One thing I do every morning is I read multiple news outlets. So I'll give my secrets. I read the Drudge Report, uh, Al Jazeera, RT, uh, Reuters. So I get you know a, a right-leaning perspective, a left-leaning perspective. What are they doing in Europe? What are they doing in Asia and Africa? Because as Americans, we're in our American bubble, right? Everything's whatever, CNN or Fox. Uh, and it's so interesting when you read RT or other international outlets, they talk about stuff in the U.S. you would never hear about here. I don't know why, you know, maybe the politics behind it. But just seeing what's going on in the world, reading a, a Japanese or Chinese news outlet, maybe it doesn't align with our political views. But, hey, you know, they, you know, they're people they're going through, you know, very similar things that we're going through and we're all interconnected. So keeping my ear to the street and being like a news junkie, I used to be like obsessed and I would read it for about like three hours a day. But now I chopped it down to like 25 minutes and then I, I'm still old school and I, I read the, the like the physical newspaper and just making sure you know what's going on around the world. And that's a, a, a way that I was able to pivot exactly how I saw what happened in Italy with the breathalyzer machine, what happened in Thailand and, and other parts of Asia with the sanitizing tunnel. They call it a tunnel or a cabin. Uh, you know, we're calling it the sanitizing station. And that was one of the integral parts of being able to pivot by understanding in the marketplace. I love this. And if there's nothing else our listeners get out of this entire episode, that nugget right there, that that idea right there about reading voraciously. And we all talk about what are our favorite books, what are our mind's favorite mindset books or tactical books. And books are great for long-term business success. But what you're talking about is what we should be doing as entrepreneurs for short-term business success. It's knowing what is going on in the world because you talked about your breathalyzer product. You saw that, I think you said, in Italy. And the fact that, that you were able to make that successful was because you saw a trend that was going on somewhere else in the world. You didn't just contain your 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 observations and your reading to what's going on in America or what's going on in New York or what's going on with your liberal friends or what's going on with your conservative friends. Right. Um, you were basically saying, let me see what is going on in the world today and how I can leverage real-time information and real-time trends and real-time everything to be a better successful entrepreneur. And it's it's so obvious. I mean, everything is so polarized today. We want to say, okay, I'm 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 left leaning, so I'm going to just read liberal stuff, or I'm right leaning, so I just want to re read conservative stuff. And it's so limiting. Or a lot of us say we're American, so we care about what's going on in America, but we don't read other things. And like you said, read Al Jazeera, read uh, BBT, read all the great, uh, great or not great international newspapers because that's really what gives us the insight to be successful. So I'm sorry for, for harping on this, but it's so important. And you're the first person we've had on this show that that's really mentioned the, the, the value of doing that. And so I just want to make sure our listeners hear that and get into the habit of reading everything you can. Don't just read the stuff that you agree with or that will agree with your, your views or agree with whatever, country you live in. So thank you for, for saying that. And and again, sorry for harping on it, but it just had to be reiterated. And I, I love that tip. 
You're you're a hundred percent right. Yeah, I mean, get out of your comfort zone. You read what others are are doing. I mean, it's actually very interesting, and especially now with all the technology we have, it's not like thirty years ago when you know you just had the local paper. I mean, you just you know have your a couple news outlets set up, like you like you mentioned, and just go through them quickly. You can just skim skim through them, but you know at least you get a feel of what's going on uh, in the world. And I would like to bring up something in regards to marketing and how I got some press and publicity in regards to the sanitizing station. So, you know, we had the product, we had it developed and everything. Now, how do we get press for it? So, you know, the news channel is not just going to come to my house or to my office and say, hey, you know, I want to feature the the sanitizing station. So this is another tip for entrepreneurs. If you have a cool product or a good idea or, you know, something you want to show to to the news or or to get some press for, literally just call. I call like every single news outlet. I I email them, just literally pounding the phones and emailing them back and forth. Like if there's a list of contacts, just email the president, the 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 VP, the the PR specialist, the business development specialist. Just email the hell out of them. Then follow up with a call, one or two calls. And and just just hit them up. You know, some people will never respond to you. Your your emails will go into spam. But I just did like a shotgun blast again. And I just spent, you know, half a day just calling everyone, you know, like a couple times a week. And that's how we ended up getting a lot of press. And I mean, we were on the local, like we have News 12 up here in the Northeast. And then uh, CBS picked us up, ABC. And yesterday, because I I speak Spanish, Univision was here. They did a live uh, morning show uh, in the morning from like, it was like 830 in the morning. It It was pretty wild being on live TV. You can say anything you want about your product and hope people believe it. But if a news outlet that people trust says something about your product, people are going to believe it. So that, I I mean, that's just another just amazing tip. Don't be scared to pick up the phone. And and a lot of us are, are, we're shy. We don't like to scream from the rooftops about our amazing products, but you got to do it and you got to get other people talking about your products as well. So absolutely amazing tip. Yeah. So where do you go from here? What is your, what's your plan? Are you going to keep improving the product? I assume, are you going to try and get the cost down? Are you going to expand your marketing? What, what does the next year or two or 10 look like for this company? So a combination of everything you mentioned, you know, getting the cost down via increasing volume, right? So that if anyone's in manufacturing or considering manufacturing with any product, obviously the more volume you make, the the better the pricing and that you can get from your suppliers and in turn you can increase your margins. So that's definitely one of the main focuses and then just increasing marketing, calling those news outlets. Um, and then once you get picked up by one news outlet, then, you know, they're all in tune with each other. It, you know, it's a small community, all the producers, you know, they either they worked with each other, went to college together, you know, they all know each other. So then another news outlet will pick us up. Maybe someone else will pick us up. So going that way, building a distributor network, so solution or say chemical manufacturers, they want to sell and and move our product. Other equipment manufacturers and distributors, mainly distributors. So building the distributor network, hiring a sales team. So I've been doing interviews. You know, we have a couple salesmen right now uh, making outbound calls, setting up the CRM. So right now we're using HubSpot and, you know, all the, the phone system uh, working on the scripts, working on on the the FAQs, the rebuttals. So trying to build an internal sales team and an external sales team at the same time. And is this a business that you think, let's say COVID 
goes away in a year because let's say we have a vaccine. Right. Um, do you plan to keep moving forward this, with this business? Do you see other applications for the sanitizing station? Or is this one of those, okay, if, if COVID goes away next year, you'll be happy that you cashed in on the opportunity and you'll move on to something else? So it seems that the severity of the crisis has everyone hypersensitive. The, the workplace anxiety, the, you know, who's going to go back into a movie theater right now? Or, you know, I love to frequent Broadway. You know, I had multiple tickets. Per, Broadway's canceled to, to at least 2021 right now. This doesn't seem like it's it's going anywhere anytime soon. May one of the things that we we can implement uh, with the machine is maybe another metal detector. Uh, I mean, adding a metal detector so we can add like a, a security aspect to it. Um, and same with the tablet and that whole facial recognition as like a security and access control. So we we can always pivot uh, in that direction into the uh, say security aspect of it. I, I absolutely love that. And and you're absolutely right. I mean, even if COVID went away today, even if there was a vaccine today, I know I wash my hands 10 times as much as I used to do it, even when I don't have to. I'm walking around my house. Right. I, I know my, my family is is not infected. I know the surfaces in my house are not infected, but I still wash my hands multiple times a day, even though I, I don't have any specific concerns. So I definitely see your point about if, something changed if covid went away these habits are now more ingrained in us than they were a couple a couple months or years ago so yeah that's a really really good point okay this has been fantastic i'd now like to jump in if it's okay with you and carol to the part of the show that we call four more and that's where we ask you the same four questions that we ask all of our guests and then the more part of the four more is where we give you an opportunity to let our listeners know where they can connect with you, where they can find out more about you and where they find out, can find out more about your business. Sound good? Sure. Okay. Um, I am going to take question number one. So uh, you've told us a little bit about working for your father and your grandfather. Uh, I don't know if that was your very first business or not, but can you tell us what your first job was or what your worst job was? I'll let you decide which one. And what did you take from it that, uh, that, that really has stayed with you till today? So first business, so I lived behind a, a public golf course. So I would, you know, go in there with our friends and shoot BB guns and play paintball. Um, but but uh, besides that, there were a ton of golf balls in the woods. So we would go in and pick up the golf balls and we would go to the little cleaning machine and we would clean up the golf balls. And, and then we would go and approach golfers on the fairway and say, hey, you know, here's, you know, 10 balls for, you know, five bucks or whatever we were selling. So I was nine. I think I was in third grade or second or third grade at the time. So that was my first business. And what I learned that still sticks with me today is just getting over the fear of approaching someone. You know, half the battle is just showing up. Like once you get in front of them and you just say, hey, you know, I, I have a product to sell, just getting over that hump and that fear. Because it's, you know, like terrifying as like a nine-year-old going up to like whatever, like a 40-year-old guy, you know, coming out of the woods <laughs> saying, hey, do you want to buy some golf balls? They're just going for it, you know, pulling the trigger, just get in front of people um, and, and don't be scared. Just like picking up the phones. We bombard everyone with emails. Now emails don't even get through. I mean, we all know how many emails we all get you know, get old school, pick up the phone, call people. Everyone's home right now. It's easy to get in touch with people and, and set up Zoom meetings. So just getting over that hump and showing up. 
I love that. Get all old school and pick up the phone. Seriously, Jay, I'm always harping on everyone about exactly that. Just pick up the phone. I love it. Okay, John, second question for you. What would you say is the best piece of advice you have for small business owners that you haven't already mentioned today? I would say, you know, during this crisis um, and you know, I'm sure we've lived through multiple crises, you know, the dot-com boom and bust, 08 recession, now this whole COVID uh, disaster that's going on, is to just reassess the businesses and and try to make decisions quickly and move, move fast. Don't wait around. It's better to make a bad decision than no decision. At least just pull the trigger, get it over with, and and see what happens. You know, we, no one knows what's gonna what's going on right now in this landscape. The president, Congress, no business owners, we have no idea. So just trying different things and pivoting quickly to get over the next hump in the next mountain. I love that. I, I and I one hundred percent agree. It's better to make a bad decision than no decision because. Too often, if you make no decision, then you will, by default, have a bad decision made for you. So it's it's better exactly. to make that decision and having having thought through it than than just letting it happen to you. So fantastic tip, I love that. Okay, question number three. We talked a little bit about reading. Normally, I would be asking you what your favorite book is at this point. And if you'd like to tell us your your favorite book that many of our listeners may not have read yet, that's great. Or if you just want to give us some of your favorite news sources or news outlets that you read, um, just give us an idea. What should we be reading that we're probably not reading at this point? In regard, well, I'm I'm just finishing up Atomic Habits, which is great. And I I, I know a lot of your listeners uh, mentioned the E-Myth, which I've read like four times that I definitely, you know, like to review every year or two. Um, But right now with the news sources, um, my first go-to is the Drudge Report, which is just a great compilation of of all the different news sources. I mean, it's a little more right-leaning, but... You know, they definitely have some more liberal um, articles in there. Um, then I, sh- I shift over to a Russian uh, news outlet, RT. So you get a whole completely different perspective, say like a little anti-American. Um, and they just have things that you would never hear about in the U.S., which I don't know, we're either trying to cover up or like not display. So RT, Al Jazeera is a little more in the middle. So I like Al Jazeera and you get like a more like Middle Eastern perspective. And then the BBC, like you mentioned, is great. Uh, also Reuters. Um, so I, I try to mix it up. And then like every week or two, I'll do like a South American, you know, because we have family in Argentina and Brazil. So I'll do like Argentina news. Then I'll do a family in Australia. I'll do like Australia news. And it's crazy. Like we don't hear about like 90% of the stuff that goes on in the world. We just hear about, you know, Biden and Trump and all this crazy election, you know, things that are going on right now. So expand, I would say expand your your intake of information instead of the normal CNN, Fox, Rigamaru. <laughs> I, I absolutely love that. And awesome. and I'll tell you, I, I read many of the uh, the outlets that you just mentioned. And it's so funny when I got, I'm talking to some friends and I'm quoting um, an outlet that is anti what my typical political views are. I always have to defend the, well, why are you reading that? Well, <laughs> you, you, you've answered that question for us very well. I'm reading that because it makes me a better entrepreneur and it makes me a more rounded person because we always want to get not just confirmation bias on the things we already believe, but we want to hear what the other side thinks because that's ultimately what's going to uh, allow us to make well-informed decisions. So love that. Thank you for all those. those. That's right. Well, after all that, the insight of all these worldly views, I'm actually kind of mortified and embarrassed to ask my very lighthearted question of 
my number four of the four more, which is, John, what's something you've splurged on in your personal or professional life that was totally worth it? Even though that sounds pathetically shallow right now <laughs> after what we just talked about, but let's end it on a light note. <laughs> hmm, uh, that's a good question. I mean, I've just been working like crazy right now, but um, I would say one of my my pleasure outlets uh, is a, a boat. So I have I got a boat a couple of years ago. Nothing too fancy, just like a twenty two foot deck boat. But uh, you know, we're on Long Island, so we're you know literally on a lot an island. So you know, the ocean's only a couple minutes away. So even after work, if I can shoot out at like eight, seven, eight p.m., just go out, maybe catch the sunset, and you know, talk to suppliers in China or email people on my boat, uh, you know, get some salt water therapy. That's what I like to to do, and, and it helps me stay sane. Perfect. Action. Love it. Love it. Okay. So that was the four part of the four more. Now for the more part of the four more, tell our listeners where they can find out more about you, more about your company and, and anything else you want to, uh, to, to let our listeners know. Sure. So they can find out more about our, our company at the, well, it's called sanitizingstation.us. That's our website. Uh, also on social media, we have sanitizing station on like Facebook, on Instagram, and they can uh, also email me. My name's John, so J-O-H-N-B at sanitizingstation.us. And that's the way that you can get hold of me. Awesome. John, this has been amazing. I just, I love the fact that you, you were able to start this business so quickly. You're so in touch with what's going on in the world and you're leveraging it and just some amazing tips. So thank you so much for being with us today. And I very much want to touch base with you again in a year and see where this business has gone, if it's pivoted again based on what's going on in the world um, or what you're doing. And maybe we'll have you back at some point and talk about your breathalyzer vending machine because, I did again, I didn't even know about that business, but I have a feeling there are a lot of great lessons to be taken from that one as well. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's uh, it's amazing being able to be on the podcast. I listen to literally every episode, um, and I would be more than happy to come on to speak about the breathalyzer and also touch base in a year to see how we progressed and pivoted. Awesome. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thank you, Talk John. To you. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. Seriously. How awesome is John. It's seriously fascinating to me so many things. First of all, I love how he talks about he was working in an aeronautical engineering factory at age nine. Are you kidding me right now? And the fact that he's had all this amazing experience to pump out this product in a matter of months and get it live onto people's sites in such a short amount of time is absolutely fascinating and just great reminders all the way around. Yep. He had some amazing tips. I, obviously, I love the tip on reading everything. Doesn't matter if you're liberal, conservative, or in between. Read everything because not only do you want to, to reinforce the things you already believe, but you also want to learn about what the other side is thinking to make us better, more well-rounded entrepreneurs and people. He had some great tips around publicity. I mean, I loved, uh, and and we've heard this before, but his tip on literally just show up, go for it, pick up the phone, call people, Call news outlets, call newspapers, get your message out there because you want other people to be hyping your products along with you because that's where the value really comes from. During this crisis or any crisis, it's so important to reassess and to make quick decisions. And this was obvious throughout the entire discussion that literally John was able to to, to make a decision that he wanted to release this $20,000 manufactured product 
And two months later, he was doing it. So just so many great tips. And uh, this is one of those episodes that I'm going to go back and listen to again, because there were a lot of great tips in there that John didn't make a big deal out of, but you hear him. And the more you listen to him, the more you think, ah, that really makes sense. I got to do that. So amazing episode. And, and I'm really excited to see where John goes with this business and whether it's still a business in a year, because who knows what's going to happen with COVID. So but I have a feeling that he'll he'll do a good job of pivoting if and when the time comes. Okay, and with that said, I think we're good to go for this week. Do you agree, Carol? Yeah, let's wrap it up. Okay, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. Stay happy, stay healthy, have an amazing week, and we will see you next week on the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. She's Carol. I'm Jay. Now go read daily and watch trends to pivot your business quickly today. Wow. Or here was my alternate. Oh, now, ready for this? Now, go all old school and actually pick up a phone today, right? I had an alternative. Oh, uh, nice. Oh, yeah, okay. there was two, lots two, of good stuff. Two for one week. I like it. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. And we'll Thanks, see you everybody. next time. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.